Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our hearts, our eyes, our ears, our minds. Father, help us to understand the things you want to teach us this week. We thank you for these words. They are sweet to our taste. They are wonderful, Father. They enlighten us, and we thank you for them. May you be magnified and exalted in Yahushua's name. Amen. So, welcome everyone online. Welcome everybody here. We're glad that you're here with us. Even those up from Sierra Vista, thanks for coming. It's good to have you with us today. And uh, thank you everyone down at Sierra Vista for all that you do. Appreciate all that you do down there and at the property. It's much, much appreciated. Okay, so uh, what are we going to talk about today? So I want you to remember when I looked at the three different portions, our Torah portion, our prophet portion, and our New Testament portion, all three are talking about the building and the setting up of either a tabernacle or a temple. And it's very interesting when you look at these three things, there's some things that stand out that I want to talk about. But to keep in mind, number one, what we're going to really focus in on, who's doing the work in these three places? Who's doing the work? Number one, both our Torah portion, our prophet portion, and our New Testament portion in Revelation talks about two olive trees. Who are the two olive trees? That was the Zachariah's question. Who are these? What are they? And so we're going to dig into that stuff. We talked a little bit about it on Tuesday. Uh, I said I'm going to be digging in hard, so I, I don't know that I have a 100% of who the Revelation ones are, but I think we have some conclusions on who's, who's being referenced in Zechariah. So that's where we're at. Uh, so we're going to dig in, in in our Torah portion first. Numbers 8.5 says, And Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Take the Levites from amongst the sons of Israel and purify them. You shall carry them out for them, their purification. You shall sprinkle them with water for purification. You know what's interesting is, the word here for purification is the Hebrew word chatat. I wouldn't have expected it to be here. But uh, this same word is used in... uh, well, I should say the same idea is used in Ezekiel 36:25 when he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So there's a sprinkling going on, both of them here. Now my question is, there is something used for the sprinkling. What is this water called? What, huh? But where do they get it from? How is it derived? The red heifer. You know what's interesting is, so this red heifer is slaughtered on the Mount of Olives, right? The east, the out, outside the camp. It's slaughtered on a place that was purchased by David, just like the Temple Mount was. And the red heifer is facing 
the Temple Mount when it's slaughtered. It has the, the hyssop, the scarlet, the cedar wood on it, just like the cleansing of the leper. And you know, our brother Judah have never been able to figure out what's the significance about this red heifer. And I find it interesting that this red heifer is directly associated with Master Yehushua, our Messiah. That it is he who died and his life now is the purification that's being sprinkled, that's cleansing us from everything. I mean, we're being cleansed by, uh, he tells the Father, cleanse them and sanctify them by your word, your or your truth, your word is the truth. So here's this sanctification by the word, which is Yeshua, he's the word that came and died, and we're getting sprinkled. And I, I have to say that I believe that all of us have been sprinkled, that this cleansing has taken place within us, that we don't, things that are, let's just say this, things that you didn't mind doing 10 years ago, it really is a problem for you now. Things that you watched 10 years ago, Mm, you're not watching those things now. Things that you said 10 years ago, I don't know if you're saying those things now. So there's, there's a cleansing going on in your heart, your mind, your speech, your deeds. There's a cleansing going on. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Both or all three of these our, our Torah portion, our prophet, and our New Testament are talking about the same kind of sprinkling and cleansing. But this Hebrew word chatat that's found for the word purification, because chatat is normally talking about sin. But look what it says here in this uh, Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary. It says, in a few passages, the term connotes the guilt or condition of sin. The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grievous. The word means purification from sin in two passages. And thus shalt thou do unto them to cleanse them, sprinkle water of purifying upon them. So it's this idea of a condition that the person is in that needs to be purified. The condition needs to be rectified. Yeshua came because we had a condition that needed to be rectified. A number one is the divorce, the separation, the, the, the thing that kept us from having fellowship had to be dealt with, but also the death sentence had to be dealt with. And so I would say that we have this, as Hebrews 10 says, we have our hearts sprinkled clean. Our hearts have been removed out of that evil conscience. We've had pure water. We've, let's say this. We've had an encounter. And the encounter has brought purification for you. And so you're no longer like we do on Shavuot. We go below that water. We come up. There's a change. The old you just really isn't that way anymore. And you know, we're not perfect. We're not 100%. But you know what? Each month, each week, each feast... We're being transformed little by little. Hallelujah. And if you have comments or questions, raise your hand. The microphone will make its way to you. Because I know Tammy's got a lot. I'm just teasing you. <laughs> Verse 16. For these have been given back to me as a restitution 
from amidst the sons of Israel. I found that word interesting because in your English Bibles, it's not restitution. They've been given back to me as restitution from amidst the sons of Israel in place of all the firstborn of the sons of Israel that open every womb. I have taken them for myself, for every firstborn among the sons of Israel, they are mine from human to animal. On the day when I struck every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them to me, and I took the Levites in place of every firstborn. So this restitution, this idea of I took them, I took the nation, what does it say? I took the firstborn among the sons of Israel, uh, every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I struck in place of. How many of you have seen this in other places in the prophets where he says, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to, when I strike the nations, I'm, they are going to be a substitute for my people. The same idea is going to come back again. God's going to destroy a group of people or uh, whatever segment, like he did in Egypt, for the people that he's consecrating to himself. Verse 19, and I gave back the Levites as a restitution. This Greek word, restitution, is apodoma, and it means a gift offering. So he's giving the Levites as a gift offering to Aaron and his sons. Wow. What a gift offering. Verse 14. Now if a guest comes to you in your land, he shall also keep the Passover to Yahuwah, according to the law of the Passover and according to its organization. So shall he keep it. There shall be one Torah for you and the guest and for the native of the land. Not two, right? There's not a Noahide law for you guys and the Torah for everybody that can prove they're Israelites. I mean, it's one law, one set of instructions. So only if the alien has himself and his house circumcised may he eat the Passover. Otherwise, he is under the law that no alien or no uh, uh, uncircumcised may eat of it. Circumcision, then, is the last barrier which prevents the resident alien from entering into cult cultic fellowship. It's interesting because remember, this is what Paul was dealing with. The people were saying, hey, look, if you just get circumcised, you can keep the Passover. You can do all the other things. If you just get circumcised, you're in. But Paul is like, no, no, no. That's not the door. The door is the Mashiach. The door is the one who died for us. That's the entrance. You can't come in and be in by just getting circumcised. Now, once you accept and believe that he died for you and, and sanctified you, cleansed you, once you believe in him, then you're in. You're, you come in and start being covenant member, but you're, you're cut off. You're not, I mean, God said, you're not my people. So if you're not a people, you've got to be brought back in as a people again. And that's only through the door of Yeshua, or you brought back in as a people. And so now that you come in through the door, now if you want to keep the Passover, get circumcised and, and do the things you do, now you're good to go. But don't let circumcision be your entrance. That's the way I see what Paul is dealing with. Okay. And again, raise your hand if you have comments. Verse 15. And on the day which the tent was set up, by the way, what month is the tent set up? 
Huh? This is the first of the month. First month. First month. So the first month, the tent's being set up. And there's a, I mean, because it says, he says, keep the Passover. So this is the 14th of the month. So it's during Passover. So he says, if a guest comes, well, I already just read that. And on the day which the tent was set up, the cloud covered the tent, the house of witness. And in the evening upon the tent, it was like an appearance of fire until morning. So it was all the time. The cloud covered it by day, the appearance of fire during the night. And when the cloud rose from the tent, after that also the sons of Israel departed. And the place where the cloud stood, the sons of Israel encamped. Isaiah 4, 5 says, Then Yahweh will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies, a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. This is proof to you that the cloud by day and the fire by night is coming again. It is returning again. Coming back, just like the Exodus is coming back. Verse 26. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting to keep an obligation. Our word obligation is the root word sharat. It's to serve, to minister. In a number of situations, the word is used to denote service, rendered to a fellow human being, though the person served usually is of a higher rank or station in life. This, would never, this word never describes a slave servitude to his master. Moses was instructed, bring the tribe of Levi near, present them before Aaron, the priest, and they may minister unto him. Elisha ministered to Elijah. Abishag is said to have ministered unto David. Various kinds of officials ministered to David. David's son Amnon had a servant that ministered unto him. There were seven eunuchs that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king. He also had servants that ministered to him. So this idea of obligation, it means to serve. Now, do we have obligations to serve? Yeshua came as an example of a servant. We're supposed to serve. We follow the example of our Messiah who showed to us that he came to serve. What through Judas off was, he was expecting the king that's going to slay all the enemies around them. But no, he came as a suffering servant. Ben Yosef. Okay. Torah. We're going to come back for a minute into the Torah portion. But I'm going to jump into Revelation. Our, our New Testament portion is Revelation chapter 11. Any other comments or questions about the Torah portion? Yes. Your, your husband's coming. Thanks. Okay, so I was reading through this, and it reminded me the way that they were setting apart the Levites and putting their hands on them and praying for them and consecrating them in some of the part. It reminded me of, like, when the church, like, puts their hands on like missionaries before they go out and serve. And, and even in the New Testament, they kind of all put their hands on people. Or when someone is, I've seen people become an elder, or be just some kind of ministry thing. Is this, is this related? Is this a different thing? Yes. So the, the, this idea of laying on of hands is very important. In this instance, you'll see like what Moses did to Joshua and what 
Moses is doing to Aaron and Aaron to his sons. It's a transferring of uh, this uh, commission, to the, this departing upon them, this idea of anointing for what they're going to do. And I'm glad you said what you said because the Father's reminding me, based on what you said, that there was something I needed to say before we move on, and that is Moses and Aaron are the two that are appointed to start this off here in this first month. Moses and Aaron, and it's very important as we look at what, the, what Zechariah says uh, about these two olive trees, because the two, the two olive trees are important about who Moses and Aaron are, and they're functioning. And remember that our Messiah, he is also functions as priest, prophet, and king. Now Moses is functioning as a king-like individual, leading him, and, and Aaron is functioning as the priesthood. So you've got these two things going on that I'm going to show you in Zechariah is exactly what's happening in Zechariah. Because what's happening in Zechariah is they're, they're, the exiles are returning, right? They're coming back from Babylon. And they're going to build the, the temple. They're going to reconstruct it. But who is it that's going to do it? It's going to happen to be Joshua, the high priest, and... Uh, Zerubbabel, the, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I'm going to show you who he is, okay? Something I found out about him. All right. So we're going to dig first into our New Testament portion. Uh, I'm pointing out something about, uh, it's Revelation 11, but I want to show you uh, about something in Revelation 19:13. who your Messiah is. It says that he, the Messiah, he is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called... The Word of God. So if I called him the Word of God, is it just as good as calling him Yahushua? <laughs> so he is, isn't it? It's his name. He's the Word of God. So John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same individual? Everyone would agree? Okay. Revelation 11.1. 1. Then, okay, go ahead. So, the word of God, right? I can say, like, right here in the... I'm oh, sorry. And Isaiah 3 says, Who can believe what we have heard? Upon who, I mean, upon whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So like another way, it's like another way to say the word of God, the yeah, hand yeah, of God, yeah, Mashiach, yeah. or whatever people like to the translate Mashiach, it to. That's right. Amen. Okay. Revelation 11.1. 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of Elohim and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Hmm. That's one half of the seven. Hmm. Interesting. Verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days, which is exactly three and a half years. They are going to be clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before Elohim of the earth. 
So Revelation is telling you that these two witnesses that are coming are also the two olive trees that we're going to find out what olive trees are all about in Zechariah. And what I would say is happening in our Torah portion because Moses and Aaron are functioning as two olive trees. My opinion. So some, some unique, interesting correlation with all of the three portions. Verse 5 and 6. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth, devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of the prophesying. Many say that it's got to be Elijah because Elijah had that power and he did those things. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. And others say, well, that's got to be Moshe because he did that whenever he was in his service. And to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Obviously, Moshe did that as well. Yes. The Messiah did it too when he changed the water to wine. Amen. Yep. Good point. And by the way, uh, since Moses served as a king, Elijah is a uh, prophet, oftentimes uh, functioning sometimes as a especially some of, the, some, of the, some of them like Samuel, who was a Nazarite functioning like a priest, uh, because remember who the first king was? Saul. Who anointed Saul king? Huh? Samuel did. You mean it wasn't the priest? How did Samuel have the right to anoint the first king unless he had some kind of functioning of being able to do that like Aaron did the, the, the priesthood, right? And Moses did Aaron. So very interesting things to keep in your mind as we move through this to, to identify who these individuals are, all right? Verse 7 and 8. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their master was crucified. So if it's a place where Yeshua was crucified, what must the city be? Must be Jerusalem, right? This is where he dies, right? So, mystically, evidently, the city of Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt because we know that Yeshua didn't die in a place called Sodom. We know he didn't die in Egypt. That's for sure. All right. Going on to verse 9 and 10. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because, now they're going to give you an idea who these two individuals are. They are what? Prophets. Hmm. These two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And yet we have Samuel, a prophet, anointed the first king. We have Elijah, who's a prophet. I mean, I mean, he's functioning in a very high position. I mean, he's, he's rebuking the false prophets of Baal. I mean, he's constructing this altar. I mean, the, the only, I think it's the only two places in all of Scripture where fire comes down and ignites the altars, King uh, um, Solomon and Elijah, king and, and prophet or king and functioning in this high. So it's very interesting. Two prophets. So this word tormented, 
2 Peter 2.8, for that the righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting him, righteous soul, after their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Same word tormenting here in Greek. It's this word, basanizo. It's to test, universally to vex with grievous pains in body or mind. So if the person was a prophet, like it's saying here, if this witness olive tree lampstand is a prophet, what could they be doing that's tormenting the people in their mind? <laughs> Go ahead, say it, Tammy. <laughs> Telling them the truth. Yeah? I mean... I've said this before, but I managed a big company, and I had people that worked for me that saw me every day. I wore my seat seat out plain at work, didn't hide them, and just wearing them, I don't want to say torment, but it caused issues with the people. Uh, so much so that I never said anything about what they could say or what they could do, but oftentimes I would come walking into the break room on a Monday morning, and they're all talking about what they did Friday night and Saturday night, maybe even Sunday, and talking about all this, I would say, wickedness, because that's what it is. And as soon as I walk in the door, it stops. It, it ceases immediately, and everybody acts like they weren't even talking about it, going about their business. And I could tell that my presence in there was offensive, that it, they weren't able to continue their gloating over the revelry that they did. And it didn't bother me because I'm like, the Almighty wants you to stop it anyway. You know, maybe my presence will stop. But anyway, this is when the truth, whether in your, your spirit or your deeds or just because the Spirit of the Most High is in you, it, that alone can vex and torment people in their mind because it makes them uncomfortable in their unrighteousness. And I would say, as Tammy said, these two prophets are proclaiming truth. They're doing mighty miracles that is causing major issues in the wickedness of the world. And they want them dead. <laughs> Just like... The enemy wants all of us dead, right? So let's go to our prophet portion, Zechariah chapter 4. Should I say what I said to you this morning about putting all this together, Polly? No? Okay, I won't say it. My counsel is very good about that, so I, I know that's a good word. All right. And so Zechariah 4.2 says, And he said to me, What do you see? And he said, I looked, and behold, a lampstand, all of it of gold, and its basin was upon its top, and its seven lamps on it, with seven and seven. I want you to remember, this is in the Targum. It's not in the, the, the Septuagint. It's not in the Masoretic text. Your English Bible, this is in the Targum. Remember I told you that the Targums are the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament that was done in 200 BCE. So it's an old scroll used to translate into Aramaic. Okay? 
Ralphie loves Aramaic, so <laughs> one of his wonderful languages. He's very gifted at going into the New Testament on the Aramaic. So anyway, what you need to notice is they say, with seven and seven that empty oil from them for the lamps that are upon its top. Now I'm going to show you what the vision looks like. Okay, Most renditions of this vision has this bowl up top, the two olive trees up to the side. There's two big spouts coming out of the olive trees into this gigantic bowl. And the bowl has, in most renditions, seven pipes coming out of the bowl into the seven lamps. But this text says that there are seven pipes going into each lamp out of the bowl. And I'm going to hone in on that because I think that there's something here that could be interesting for us to see. Because what's happening? In our Torah portion, a tabernacle is being built and erected. Our prophet portion here, they're coming from the land and they're about to construct and build the temple. And what's happening in Revelation is, is another scene with the prophets who are called the lampstands and the olive trees. Because there's a mission that they're doing. There's a mission that they're doing, which I believe coincides with what's happening in our Torah portion and our prophet portion. <laughs> Got Tammy riding. Can't wait to see what it is. <laughs> All right, here's the lampstand with the bowl on top. And you can see that it has a pipe coming down. Some of you would say uh, it's, it's a hose. Hose, pipe, whatever you want to call it. But it's this that, that's allowing the oil in the big bowl up top to drain into the lamps so that they continually burn. So what's supplying the bowl? What's supplying the bowl? So here's the bowl. I did in red one of the pipes. So the, this, this, I didn't want to do all of them, but I did one of them red. These are the seven uh, and seven that empty oil from them into the lamps that are upon it. So what's feeding the bowl? This is the big bowl, so here it is. So you can see the two olive trees. You got the two pipes coming in. They're dripping oil into the bowl. The bowl is feeding the lamps. And by looking at this vision, you see that the lights will never cease to burn because the trees are supplying oil into the bowl that's supplying oil to the lamps, and it will burn forever. It's an interesting image. I've got a better picture for you here in a minute. It's, this is just a simple black and white, but I've got a colorful one for you here in a second. So Zechariah 4.3 says, And the two olive trees were beside it, one on the right and one basin and one on its left. Revelation 11.4 says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Elohim of the earth. Hmm. Well, we know that the two trees, Revelation says they're prophets. This is a cool picture of that same image. Two, I mean, you can tell these are olive trees because of the twisted uh, base of it, like in the picture over here. These olive trees, if you've been over there in the land, you can see that it, these, these bases are twisted like it's really amazing. And just constant oil from those trees just filling that basin. Can you imagine this never running out? How long do these trees last? Some of them are last how many years? A thousand. A thousand years. Some of these trees could exist continuing to bring full oil. Pretty cool, huh? 
All right. So I found a commentary that supported this Targum rendition of, of seven sevens. Watch this. The visionary candlestick, all of gold, with its seven lamps, is unquestionably a figurative representation of the seven-branched golden candlestick in the tabernacle, and differs from this only in the three following additions, which are peculiar to itself. That, that is, has its galua, with a, the feminine termination resolved in Hosea, a can or round vessel for the oil, which was omitted altogether from the candlestick of the holy place, when the lamps were filled with oil by the priest at the top of it, that it had seven pipes, each for the lamps, that is to say, tubes, through which the oil poured from the gula into the lamps, or was conducted to them. Whereas the candlestick of the tabernacle had no pipes, but only seven arms, for the purpose of holding the lamps, which of course could not be wanting in the case of the visionary candlestick, and are merely omitted from the description as being self-evident. The number of the pipes is also a disputed point. Whether the, the Hebrew here for these pipes means seven and seven, as it does in the Targum, or 14, uh, meaning 14, or whether it is to be taken distributively, seven for each lamps, seven for each one, and therefore 49 for the seven. So if there is truly seven pipes for each lamp, there are 49 total pipes going in to those lamps. So I was so happy when I found this commentary from a Hebrew. These guys, are, they're all about the Hebrew commentary, so they're very, very good. All right. Zechariah 4, 6 says, And he answered and said to me, This is the word of Yahuwah to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. The Targum says, Not by strength nor by might, but by my memra. Now, what is the difference between spirit and word, or are they not the same? First John 5, 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Yehushua HaMashiach, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. And we know that Yeshua, who is the word, says he's the truth. So now we have the spirit and the truth being declared as one. And I love it that the English uh, and the, the Masoretic and the Targum are declaring that this, uh, it's by the spirit or the word that it's going to happen, not by our own strength. I'm getting somewhere, so watch. I'm going to give you a hint of where we're going. Can anyone here say that you came to Torah because of your own design and purpose and your own will? So the Spirit led you somehow to something that was in what? That was in the Word? So the Spirit and the Word brought you to a reality that you understood 
that there was more to your faith than what you knew before than what had ever been revealed to you. But it was the Spirit and the Word because I can tell you that I couldn't have come to the realities of this without the Spirit. Couldn't have happened. And the Spirit led me to these realities, which is the Word that made the changes within me. The Memra. Lisa's been having some fun with that word, Memra. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we ought to give thanks to Elohim always for you, brothers, beloved by the Master, because Elohim from the beginning chose you to be saved in set-apartness of spirit and belief in the truth. In spirit and in truth. Not by might, not by power, but in the spirit and the truth, says the Almighty. Wow. Spirit and in truth. That's why he says you must worship me in spirit and in truth. Because it's not going to come by power. It's not going to come by might. It's going to come by my spirit and my word. Mm. Zechariah. Now I'm going to show you this in three different languages or three different texts. Targum, Septuagint, and Masoretic. Okay? So you need to see this. Zechariah 4.13 in the Targum says, These are the two sons of the princes. The Septuagint says, These two sons of fattiness. The Masoretic says, These are the two anointed ones. What do they have in common? So I had to do some research to find out what are the princes. And princes are anyone who has ruled how many of you have seen that they called the, the priests princes? How many of you have seen that he called the kings princes? Yeah. Lisa shared with me something on Tuesday that helped me see what the fattiness was, because she immediately said oil when, I, when she read this fattiness. And so these are the two sons of oil. What would, they, what would any of these have to do with oil? Well, number one, a king is anointed with oil, and the high priest is anointed with oil. In other words, these are people that have, a, have been commissioned and have been anointed to serve the Most High in a given position that they have been sent out to do. So Zechariah, when he sees this, yes, go ahead. So my understanding in Revelations is when the abomination of des desolation takes place, the revealing of the anti-Messiah and then the revealing of the two witnesses will be revealed at that time. And so obviously we know, based on the word, obviously there are going to be two prophets. They have to be prophets that are anointed. Whether they're anointed right then at the commission or they were anointed way back when in our Tanakh, these are men that are known, because obviously, are they not on a mission to accomplish what the Almighty has set them to do? You can't be on a mission and not be anointed. God has sent men on a mission. He anoints them to do because they are going to do things that specifically show who sent them. The Messiah was anointed. The name Mashiach comes from this root word, uh, Mashach, which means to anoint or to smear. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> so 
this anointing is important here. So I would say all of this, all three really are harmonized, even though I was trying to, what do these three mean? They're all three talking about the same thing. They're talking about two individuals who have an anointing upon them. And guess what? If, we, if they're the two olive trees, it apparently means that those olive trees don't ever run out of oil. So the anointing on them does not run dry. And the work that they're going to do won't be stopped, won't run dry of the anointing. Did, did the Messiah run out of anointing in his mission? No. Did the apostles? No. Did Elijah's? No. You can go on and on. The anointed men, they, they, you could say some of the kings, but some of the kings deviated from what their mission was called to do. Yes. Can you go back to the picture that you last showed of those trees? Because I've had this in my thoughts and I can't really, it's I'm not cool exactly picture. sure, okay, about all this, but in looking at this, I understand it's a vision, but you have a, an instrument coming out of a tree that's pouring oil and if you think about it, the oil just doesn't come out of the tree. It doesn't come out of the roots. It doesn't come out of the bark. It doesn't come out of the trunk. It doesn't come out of the leaves. It comes out of the fruit. Okay? And, and to be extracted from the fruit, it takes a beating and a... Um, you have to go through a process to get the anointing out, the oil out of that fruit. So it seems to me like there's, I've just been thinking about this as you've been sharing, and this picture doesn't leave my mind, that these prophets, the oil, the, the olive oil, and I'm going to use the word olive oil, but the, the oil is representing the anointing because these have been anointed. They have been gone through the, the process in their life of the, the, I don't want to say the word beating, but that's what it takes for the olives to produce the fruit. But they've gone through the, um, there's a better word, they've gone through the experiences. They've made their way through so that their fruit is now bearing a continual anointing. That's why the tree is showing this continual anointing is pouring out from you and the correlation between those past scriptures that you just showed about the fattiness. You got that, that the fruit, I mean, we're supposed to bear fruit, right? And that fruit that we bear brings forth oil and anointing. And so like she said, if you've ever read this, how, the, how they derived the oil for the lamps, for to burn them, it wasn't a pressing or a crushing. That was after the first step. The way that they got the pure oil for the lamps was they beat the olives. They were beaten. That's the first extraction. And so when you are bearing forth fruit and you're getting beaten at work and you're getting beat out in the place and the world is beating you like they're going to do to those two prophets that are going to be the olive trees, that's producing the sweet stuff 
for the burning of the, of the lamps on that menorah. This is how the, the fire is set, the, the flames go ablaze in you because now you are producing fruit that's getting tested through the beating and it produces sweet oil for the burning. And so let's, let, we shouldn't uh, be upset that the testing comes. We, we just need to move through it and trust the Almighty as it says our eyes are on Him. Our eyes are on Him because he's going to bring forth that good oil in you as that fruit bears forth. Yes. Oh, yes. <clears throat> um, I had a friend text me yesterday, and he said, when I read the scriptures and I study, it's harder for me to sin. And so I was thinking about that, and I um, reminded me of the menorah. Um, I believe our bodies within us are a tabernacle, a working tabernacle. And we had the menorah within us, and it, it's burning. That's why when Yeshua says that we are to be a shining light, yep. and it, we don't hide it, but we, <laughs> we, we show people our light. Amen. And um, so I was thinking, like, connecting to what he was saying through text, you know, reading the word of Elohim, that's feeding our light, because if we're not in his word, uh, it, we can start being led astray, because we're not constantly being reminded of what we should do by reading his word. That's what keeps us close to him, is by reading him. And so our menorah within us, and I, reading his word also feels it. It keeps it burning light. Um, another thing I was thinking about menorah, it was made of one solid piece of gold. And then in, um, in John 17, it says that we are to be as one. And it also talks about the seven churches. And we, the seven churches are like all different types of what's going on in the world today. The, the good things and the bad things, but we still need to be as one, especially these dark days that are coming and what Israel's facing right now. We need to come as one, regardless of Amen. how, you know, you're this kind of Christian or you're that kind of Christian. Amen. We all have that menorah burning in us, regardless of where you're at. We need to be one. Because the enemy sees you as one. The enemy doesn't see these distinctive, separated things that we do amongst ourselves. The enemy's looking at you as one people. And they're coming against everybody that calls upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They care less if this group says the name this way. Or the, you're, you're, you're the enemy. We're coming after you. And so, yes, I agree that we're one here and then there. I think part of the beating that needs to take place or that does take place for the anointing to come out has to come from ourself. And I think just sharing my own experience this week, there was flesh that I had to beat this week, and I had to beat it hard because flesh wants to be defensive. It wants to get angry. It wants to make a decision that um, maybe feels right for the flesh. But spending time in front of the Father enough, you realize that the beating that needs to take place for the anointing to flow is your own flesh that needs to, because words hurt, people hurt, things hurt, and you want to act upon 
maybe something that um, you just need to go through a little bit of beating of your own flesh down so that you can come, you know, on the other side and let the anointing now flow out. And I will say that I took a beating this week and it was horrid. <laughs> so she's not alone. Yes, back in the back. This goes back to when we look at the tabernacle. As you enter the outer court, you offer yourself up as an offering. Then you go into the holy place. You have the menorah, the bread, in the um, altar of incense. The three common things are the olives are crushed, the grain is crushed to make the bread, and the incense is crushed. But they also must, go, must all go through fire. So we must go through crushing and fire before we get to the holy of holies. So the common is to be the light, we're to be crushed and go through fire. To be the bread to others, we need to be crushed and burned. And to be a sweet smell, we need to be crushed and burned. So the beating, again, all of, think about the Bible. These men have been beaten. They're, since the Adam, was he not beaten? Okay, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of these men went through trials and tests. Job, have you considered him? Right? That's what. So we all have to go through these beatings because it's purging. And it's funny that the lampstand is gold because what do you have to do to go to mold it? Don't you got to beat it and heat it up? Anything else, right? Iron sharpens iron. Don't you got to heat the iron first and then beat it to shape it? So who's the potter? Yeah. Right? He's yeah. shaping us into what he wants us to be. And aren't we his? What are we? We are his. We his army. That's what we are. So he's Amen. shaping his weapons. We are being forged with fire. We got to be forged with fire, which is going to take some beating. So don't run from the beating, just take it. Amen. Love it. Yes. So kind of what he was saying, how about Job, when Job, uh, God was punishing him essentially, and Job said to his wife, how can we really accept the good and not the bad? And because God gives us free will to do good or bad, yeah. he, he gives us his Torahs and his mitzvahs for us to follow, but some of us don't, but when we do... It's a good, uh, it's a good essence to follow. Yep. And then also the other word that you guys have been saying, beating, like it's kind of like a, you could say a pressure. It's a lot of pressure on us. Sometimes we feel a lot of uh, stress. And like Psalm 25 says, free, redeem Israel from all his distresses. And from that, we can say um, as a diamond, the diamonds are very beautiful, but how are they made? Under pressure, under the earth, under the rocks, under the carbon. So I, I guess like a way for the, the pressures when they pressurize all the olives or the, or the grapes to make wine, it's all being pressurized to, to get something pure, beautiful after. So I guess, you know, we're all diamonds in the essence that we go through tests, uh, trials, tribulations, whatever it may be. But at the end, we come out shiny and we, and we do, we praise God in his high sanctuary and his, because he's loving kindness and uprighteousness. righteousness. Sure. All right, so I want to get to this. Let's see where I was at. Um, all right, I think we were here. Okay. So I want to show you this. So remember, uh, this we've got king and, and priest, right? King and priest, which 
seems to be what these two sons of princes, sons of fattiness, two anointed ones, we've got this king and priest. Remember, so we've got in Zechariah, it's Zerubbabel and Joshua. These are, and Joshua is the son of who? Jehoshadik. So you got Yeshua, the son of, what does Jehoshadik mean? It's Yorevave, the righteous. <laughs> so you got the Yehushua, the, 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 the salvation of God, son of the Yorevave, righteous. So it's really amazing scene. So here's what I found. Ezra 3.2 says, Then Yeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel and his brothers arose and built the altar of Elohim of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the Torah of Moses, the man of God. Now, Zerubbabel was a grandson of King Jehoiakim. He's the son of a king. He's a son of anointed one. Just as it says here, he's the son of a prince. And so is Josh, uh, Yeshua. They're both sons of princes, anointed to do a task that the Most High said to do. He was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in 597 B.C. What an amazing thing is to see that this man, he's a grandson, great-grandson or a grandson of a king who was anointed. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay. So I want to show you something, and I want to see if anyone gets it when I show you this picture. I'm going to give you my rendition of what the, the bowl and the seven pipes filling into the seven candlesticks looks like. You know what? I put that on there. It's going to give it away. That's all right. Okay. So here's the big bowl on top, this big oval golden thing. Seven pipes. I highlighted one of them red to show you that there's seven pipes here. And each of those seven pipes feed into seven individual golden sticks, candlesticks, right? Now, where am I going with this? How many of you know or have heard that this outpouring of the Torah began in the 90s? I mean, when I first came into this, I remember a lot of people said, I mean, they would search back. We can't find anybody, you know, really in the 80s, but it seems that this pouring out, coming to the knowledge of Torah, started in the 90s. Okay? Remember, we've got this happening here. God's building something, right? God is building something. He's using Aaron and Moses to build something. He's using Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, or uh, Yehushua, the priest, to build something here as they come out of Babylon. And so, in these days today, the Most High is building something. And He's using the Spirit and the Word to build it. Do you have a question or a comment? So I'm going to show you what I saw. The seven sticks are the seven periods of seven uh, that we've been going through since 1996. 
uh, of this outpouring. In the last days, I will pour forth my spirit. I will pour forth an anointing. I will pour forth my word. I will pour out to my people, and they will come from afar. They will come from near, and they're going to seek me. They're going to search my face. They're going to come to me, and they're going to repent of their ways. And the spirit of Most High is going to pour out onto the people because it's going to be an unlimited oil. It's going to be an oil that won't run out. It's going to be an oil that's going to come to you, and it's going to fill you up. It's going to empower you. You're going to have boldness. You're going to have courage. You're going to be able to go out and face the enemy because the spirit and the word of the most high is filling you and he's building an assembly he's building a congregation he's building a, a people in these last days and i'm seeing that these set these seven sets of seven are what these seven sets of pipes are pouring into the 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 epic of time that we're running through 1996 to 2002 are seven pipes in these last seven, 17 through 23, or, the, or another seven hitting in the middle. It's just so awesome to me to see this. Yes, Mike. <laughs> oh, I noticed uh, in the previous one, you said, no, no, the previous chart you had to that. Yeah. You said the red line was, you put it, I don't know if you put there on purpose, because that's the year 2023. I was just trying to show that there are seven individuals. Right, ones. but that represents 2023. That's right, it does. Yeah. I don't know if you meant to do no, that. No, I didn't do that on purpose, but yes, you're right. That would be, that would be this year, yeah. <laughs> okay, yes. And just to touch on what Mike was saying, it's also directly in the middle of the menorah amen amen all right so i want to finish with what i what i'm seeing here about what's being built here in these seven years or these seven sevens and zechariah he sees a lampstand that is continually kept burning by an unlimited reservoir of oil we are seeing this unlimited reservoir of oil being poured out to us this picture reminds the people that it is only through Elohim's spirit that they will succeed, not by their own might and resources. The spirit of Elohim is given without measure. Human effort is not the difference maker. The work of Elohim is not accomplished in human strength. Small things mark the beginning of the work of the hand of Zerubbabel. But none might despise it, for Yahweh had raised up the one who would preserve until the headstone should be brought forth with shoutings. The plummet was in good hands. Here is the comfort of every believer in Master Yeshua. Let the work of grace be ever so small in its beginnings. The plummet is in good hands, meaning it's in the Messiah's hands. The work is in the Messiah's hands. He's the one that's measuring. A master builder greater than Solomon has undertaken the raising of the heavenly temple. And he will not fail nor be discouraged till the topmost pinnacle shall be raised. If the plummet were in the hand of any merely human being, we might fear for the building. But the pleasure of the Almighty shall prosper in Master Yushua's hand. The works did not proceed irregularly and without care, for the Master's hand carried a good instrument. Had the walls been hurriedly run up without due superintendence, they might have been out of this perpendicular. But the plummet was used by the chosen overseer. Yahushua is evermore watching the erection of his spiritual temple. 
that it may be built securely and well over these last, uh, whatever, 25 years and still some to come yet of this epoch of time that we're in. We are for haste, but Yahushua is for judgment. He will use the plummet, and that which is out of line must come down every stone of it. Hence the failure of any uh, of many of a flattering work, the overthrow of many a glittering profession. It is not for us to judge the master's church, his assembly, since Yahushua has has a steady hand and a true eye and can use the plummet well. Do we not rejoice to see the judgment left to him? Hmm. So I'm going to read you Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Messiah, and remember this since 1996 to going on, we're in this time of pouring out. We're in this time receiving the oil. Now, Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. You've come to the Torah. For he is our peace, who has made both one, and having been bro- and broken down the partition of the barrier, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the Torah of the commandments in dogma, so as to create in himself one renewed man from the two, thus making peace and to completely restore to favor both of them unto Elohim in one body through the stake, having destroyed the enmity by it. And having come, he brought as good news peace to you who were far off, and peace to who is near. Because through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, and you might add one word. <laughs> not by might, not by power. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're no longer those people, but fellow citizens with the set-apart ones and members of the household of Elohim, having been built upon the foundation of the emissaries who? Prophets. Just like Revelation says, the two are prophets. The prophets, Yehushua Messiah himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building being joined together, grows into a set-apart dwelling place in Yahuwah, in whom you also are being built together into this amazing tabernacle temple, just like we see in our Torah portion, just like we see in our prophet portion, just like we see in Revelation, we're the ones being built. We're the ones that have the supply. We're the ones who have this high priest and prophet and king that is at work in us. And what an amazing understanding and knowledge to know He is doing this work in us. Because we all would know that it wasn't by our own hand that we came to where we are. We've come together in this one dwelling in the Spirit and in the Word. So the prophet, king, spirit, and memory is doing the work in these days. Hallelujah. You are all the witness and the testimony to this work being built and done in this last 50-year, or I should say possible 50-year, possible 50-year last jubilee cycle that humanity could know. Only the king knows. Would you stand with me? Now we get to say, Shabbat
joining us. Thank you all here. Have a blessed rest of your Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.